Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. It's been a week since our last podcast in Ukraine, and so much has happened in the meantime. Absolutely. I can't quite believe that um, that, that was just a week. I remember on Monday thinking, what, this must be a week already, and uh, here we are. You've been away on holiday, haven't you? Yes, my timing was perfect as usual. Uh, I uh, I was in the middle of nowhere on a campsite, which was very lovely and very naturey, and ha- but luckily had Wi-Fi, so I could still follow some of it. But I was also detached from some of it. Uh, and you were also, uh, or you were not on holiday, but you were rather in bed. What happened? I've got COVID and uh, still have uh, testing myself occasionally, and still uh, still have it. Um, and I am in bed. I am actually underneath a duvet at the moment because I didn't um I don't have access to my microphone where I am so I'm recording on an iPhone but I thought I'd try and improve the sound quality by getting under a duvet which is appropriate I think when you've got COVID. Well I gotta say my sound quality is not going to be the usual either because there is work men at the back of my house so I can't be in my normal supply closet so I'm in my office which is very lovely and looks out on the street but that also means potential street noises of people walking by and cars so you you get a bit of a a sound landscape that is different from the usual podcasts. So we're going to try and uh, cover quite a lot of ground uh, today. First uh, of all, just to let you know, later in the podcast, we're here directly from one of the people collecting evidence on the ground in Ukraine to, you know, ready for possible processes later. I think the biggest challenge at the moment, or it will be for some time, is just to collect all this information and preserve it properly. So more of that later on with the proposed new tribunal that's being discussed at the moment for aggression and some bits on universal jurisdiction efforts too. But first we get an expert assessment of how the Genocide Convention comes into play because there are uh, ICJ hearings in The Hague here where Ukraine is trying to get accountability for uh, Russia's actions in the kind of quick fix method they have where they launched a case but then they can ask for provisional measures which is a lot quicker. And we will have those hearings on Monday the 7th and Tuesday the 8th of March. Should we try and give a bit of context here to people about the International Court of Justice, Stephanie? What what exactly is Ukraine up to? Well, the International Court of Justice, which I know the agencies and me like to call the World Court, is the UN highest court for disputes between states. And Ukraine and Russia both haven't signed the declaration that gives the court immediate jurisdiction over disputes between them. So they had to invoke some kind of UN treaty. And Ukraine is now doing this going at the court via the Genocide Convention. And their argument is... Russia and the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, is using the fact that Ukraine allegedly is committing genocide in eastern Ukraine as a reason to intervene, as a as a legal kind of pretext for war. And they are saying to the court, uh, we want you, A, to establish that there's been no genocide, and B, to say this pretext is not lawful. There's no lawful basis to go to war. So to give us a bit of a hand running through this uh, here, we turn to Melanie O'Brien, Associate Professor of International Law at the University of Western Australia Law School, and also President of the International Association of Genocide Scholars. 
this is another example of the misuse of the term genocide, the, the political misappropriation of the term, because there's absolutely no evidence that there is genocide going on in Ukraine. And so to use that term is an abuse of, of the term genocide. And the International Association of Genocide Scholars Executive Board, we put out a statement acknowledging this. And what we also said was that it, it does a disservice to the victims and survivors of actual genocides because it's diminishing their experience as well. And what we also need to remember is that in Ukraine, we actually have people who are survivors of two other genocides, the Holodomor and the Holocaust. The Babinia massacre was one of the biggest massacres of the Holocaust. So, you know, thousands of Jews slaughtered in, in one massacre. So we're looking at a place where they have a past of being victims of these types of things. And so these accusations that genocide is, is happening are completely unfounded. And there are reports that have come out from the UN that have not found any evidence of this whatsoever. But Ukraine could just say then they shouldn't be misusing this. I mean, why take it to the International Court of Justice on, on that basis? It feels very slender. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting case and, it, and it's quite different because normally if we were thinking about states going to the ICJ over the Genocide Convention, our first thought would be that one state is taking another state for violating the convention because they are committing genocide. So this is really different. But if you look at the text of the Genocide Convention, it does allow for a case to be brought to the ICJ based on the interpretation of the convention. So the interpretation of the definition of genocide. So that's what they're arguing here. So I think it's really interesting. And they could be just, yes, Ukraine could be simply saying it publicly, but to take it to the court and actually ask the court to make a legal ruling on this as to whether this is, you know, in a sense, a dispute over the interpretation of the convention itself is really interesting. So, of course, what they're saying, their argument is that Russia is misusing the term genocide to justify their invasion of Ukraine on so-called humanitarian grounds. But of course, that is then based on a misinterpretation of genocide. And so therefore, it's a faulty logic and therefore the invasion is illegal. And what is it that the International Court of Justice can do? I mean, already the president put out a very kind of strong letter to the Russian side saying you really have to pay attention to this. I mean, what, what what's the possibility that we might see coming up very soon, I, I would imagine, in the next week or so? Yes, so they've got hearings on Monday and Tuesday uh, with the arguments from Ukraine and then Russia. So it is coming up really soon, obviously, because it's quite an urgent situation. And what Ukraine has asked for are provisional measures. And so the crux of the provisional measures is that they've asked the court to ask Russia to stop what they're doing. So essentially to stop the, the conflict and to withdraw from Ukraine because the invasion is based on a faulty interpretation of genocide. So that's essentially what they're asking. So what we'll see is whether the court thinks that they have at least prima facie jurisdiction to begin with. So at provisional measures stage, the court doesn't have to make an assessment on the facts. So they don't actually have to make the assessment about this issue over the interpretation of the term genocide. But they do have to consider whether they have jurisdiction and then say, okay, well, then we're going to apply some provisional measures. But 
If they do ask for provisional measures, namely that Russia ceases uh, the, the attacks on Ukraine, then we're going to see something interesting as to what Russia's reaction is, what Russia will actually do and whether or not they will simply ignore the court. And doesn't Russia have a judge on the court? Yes, Russia has a judge on the court. It's the vice president, Kirill Gavorgian, of the court. So he's been a member of the court since 2015. So that will be interesting to see what happens. And Ukraine has also invoked its right to have uh, an ad hoc judge on the court. So it will be interesting to see who they choose if the case goes ahead. And just to go back to Russia's allegations about genocide, if this case did kind of go forward on, on its merits about the interpretation of the convention, is it possible that Russia might start to try to introduce some arguments about that it's justified in its allegations of genocide? And if it did want to do that, what would it have to, what kind of evidence would it have to bring to prove genocide? It would have, yeah, it would absolutely have to bring in some evidence of what it's talking about. So when we look at genocide, we've got two things that you have to prove. And the first one is the the dollar specialis, the special intent of genocide. So that's the intent to destroy. And that's the most difficult thing to prove in genocide. And so they would have to actually be bringing to court evidence that demonstrates that the Ukrainian regime has an intent to destroy the Russian speaking population within Ukrainian territory. So that would be, for example, it's often things like speeches from leaders, but it's also can be demonstrated by actions that are carried out. So they would have to prove that, but then they would also have to prove the facts, the crimes themselves. So they would have to prove, for example, whether Ukraine has carried out killing of people from their particular targeted group and or, for example, uh, transfer of children. So that you, the variety of crimes they would have to prove which one of those they were talking about. But the other thing they would have to prove is that this group that they're claiming, so the Russian-speaking group, fits within one of the protected groups under the crime of genocide. So they could possibly argue that they are ethnically different, perhaps. I think that would be a bit of a stretch. Um, but they could also argue that they were national. So, you know, certainly where the other ones we're looking at don't really fit, but national is probably what they could argue because Russia has given them uh, Russian citizenship as well. So they may use that as, as the targeted group category that they're arguing. So those are three things that Russia would have to prove. So it's quite, it's a difficult crime to prove. And so they would have to bring a lot of evidence to the table. And really, totally hypothetically, I mean, if any country can prove that genocide is going on in another country, I mean, can that justify an invasion? Well, this is the question about unilateral humanitarian intervention. And really only the UK, the UK is the only country that categorically thinks and says that a unilateral humanitarian intervention is legal. So there isn't an accepted law saying that this is some, this is acceptable in under international law, even though we think that it should be in the sense that, you know, stepping in to stop genocide. But at the same time, you have to remember all these fundamental principles underlying international law, like sovereignty and use of force and those kinds of things. So it would be very, very difficult for a state to do that, to argue that.
Now let's turn to the other mechanisms that are looking into this. And there is a lot going on also here. Oh, yeah. I'm really not too sure how many we're going to get through. But let's start off with the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Yes, that was the big uh, development last week. We saw the largest ever referral in ICC's history. 39 states' parties asked Prosecutor Karim Khan to immediately proceed with an active investigation into the situation in Ukraine and events uh, from uh, 2013 onwards, including the current conflict. Khan already had jurisdiction and was already asking the judges to open an investigation. But by getting this referral, he basically bypassed the need to ask the judges for approval and could immediately open an investigation. So he managed to fast track it with this uh, with this referral. And also really fast track. Uh, he's been uh, telling the media that he's got an advanced team already on the ground. But maybe we should just put a little bit more context again, Stephanie. You know, what about everything that the ICC has been doing already so far on Ukraine? Since 2015, they had a preliminary examination into uh, alleged uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity in eastern Ukraine and the Crimea. And they were already looking into that. And they have, after five years, so in 2020, they finished that uh, investigation. And the prosecutor at the time, Fatou Ben Souda, said this investigation is finished. We have... Uh, reason to believe that some crimes were committed, but they are very vague about what those crimes were and who were the alleged perpetrators and said we should really ask to open an investigation. But my office is overrun with cases. Uh, we don't have the resources, so I'm not going to open it just yet and left it to the new prosecutor. He was reviewing the case when all of this happened. And so he then moved on to wanting to open a case under the current developments. So I managed to track down Nadia Volokova, who's from the Ukraine Legal Action Group. They've been collecting evidence for years and they've been providing analysis of that evidence for the Office of the Prosecutor over the years. She spoke to me from somewhere in western Ukraine. She and her colleagues are kind of scattered in different places there. Many have moved out from Kiev. And in fact, on this recording, you can hear somebody coming into the room behind her while we're on the call. And I found her remarkably calm for somebody who's dealing with their country being invaded at the moment and very matter of fact. And she started off by explaining to me how her organisations work and the kind of people that she work with, how, how their work on eastern Ukraine has been going specifically. We thought that it would be very useful and helpful to the OTP during the preliminary examination stage to um, have an idea and understanding of what was happening on the ground and the efforts of the domestic authorities and NGOs and, you know, what was happening with the legislation, whether there had been any changes or, you know, situation with the Rome statute and implementation within the domestic law. By the time we already had the expertise to um, do this kind of analysis and to cooperate with the OTP at the level of complementarity analysis, if you like, um, doing it, helping them to understand um, and also domestically, we, of course, were pushing for the necessary changes in order to for the domestic authorities to be able to prosecute the perpetrators of grave crimes. You must have been kind of when Fatih Bensouda, Karim Khan's predecessor, made her announcement to say that, yes, she did think that there was enough evidence just before she left that uh, an investigation could be opened. It must have been 
kind of gratifying to you, but also disappointing that she said that she didn't have the resource to be able to uh, to try to steer that through. So I mean, my question, I suppose, behind that is, have you felt that, that there's been enough work been done in The Hague? Have you had enough kind of attention uh, considering the, the mass of material that you must have been gathering? Sort of the initial reaction was, yes, very positive, but we had a lot of questions, of course, how they would proceed. And there, were, there were a lot of questions and very few answers. So we were left, you know, hanging in the air for the moment. And now suddenly everything changes again. And suddenly you get 39 countries uh, saying that uh, this investigation has to start and suddenly the prosecutor says that he is starting. Are you aware of, of what the ICC is getting going with? I mean, how they're operating? Sort of, yes, but it's just everything is chaotic at the moment. And I understand that it's been a lightning speed, which the events have been happening with. And um, a lot of the big decisions have to be taken very quickly. And um, I think also because uh, nothing has, we haven't been prepared, they haven't been prepared. So it's all a bit um, chaotic and messy at the moment. And I think everybody's just whoever is in a safety now we from our end we're trying to organize the process so that it's most conducive you know to helping the ICC sort of you know start and conduct this investigation as effectively as possible also considering you know the past experience that they've already had and for us as well like for example with Georgia you know the delays and in, in the in the investigation and you know the situation with witnesses and stuff like that so we would like to avoid that but obviously it's outside of our hands. Well how do you avoid avoid that I mean I suppose you can avoid it by it starting very quickly and you actually being there and and getting on with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, just uh, just being on it as much on the top of things as as possible I mean Obviously, we have we have the coalition of the NGOs at the moment. I mean, there are already different coalitions around, um, um, but our, our organization is part of the local coalition of NGOs. And within our coalition, we sort of decide, divided amongst ourselves different processes like advocacy, litigation, um, international litigation, documentation, and stuff like that. So... Also, uh, we approached the OTP and um, asked them what the, their priorities were at the moment or the needs for them so that, you know, we're not just preparing communications, which they don't have the capacity to even read right now, you know, because they are busy with building the investigation team and deploying them wherever they think is, you know, they would need to go to collect evidence as well or, you know, start doing their work. So we're trying to coordinate with them. They said they would have a meeting with us um, soon, hopefully to explain how things are going to unravel in the way and um, our role, what it could be in terms of it being the most effective and conducive to everyone's work. I'm wondering also about these kind of calls for some kind of space in which um, material will be gathered I mean, I know stuff can go directly to the ICC and they will look after it, but I'm also hearing, because you can see a lot of different organisations who I, I can't imagine are part of your 
sort of really on the ground networks, people from a big distance who are also collecting material and so on. So people are talking about, would it be worthwhile having something sort of um, one of those coordinating structures like the IIIM for Syria, which gathers and then sends material out. Is there any purpose in having something like that? Or do you think it's better just to get on with it and let people like you on the ground work with those who are collecting material and get it straight to the ICC? I think what we are trying to set up for ourselves at the moment, because obviously if we're talking about evidence that would be uh, suitable and admissible at the ICC, and we're talking about digital evidence and open source evidence, then obviously there's a certain standard that needs to be considered. And that's what we're trying to set up this process within our organization at the moment. I don't know how the rest of the coalitions are approaching it. I I think the majority of the coalitions that have international organizations within them, and they sort of aware of it. And there are various offers around to build archives, to create certain space, you know. So we're kind of like also doing it, but we're trying to um, see what the best option for us would be in terms of the volume of the information that we will collect, the accessibility of different contributors, um, and also how these archives can be integrated if it comes to that, that, you know, for example, down the line, all of a sudden the decision makers decide to set up something similar to like triple IM. And then, you know, so that it's all preserved properly and stuff. And so these archives can be integrated, but they can very well work separately as well, I think. Um, For example, if we do our own archive and then the government has their own archive, it means that the ICC would just need to, you know, pull out the information from different archives as long as as the evidence is preserved properly to, you know, to the necessary standard. And just in more general point, you can hear a lot of people using the term war crimes already in regard to what what is going on in Ukraine. And that can be quite a technical point. I mean, unfortunately, it's quite a legal thing, isn't it, to actually define whether something is uh, a war crime. I mean, the same with crimes against humanity. There are very specific legal definitions for this. Is it your opinion as a lawyer that there are various acts that you have uh, come across evidence about that that you would point to and say, yes, these are war crimes? Yes, I think there's a lot of information around, especially in Telegram channels. I think it's the most sort of popular resource at the moment in Ukraine, where a lot of the information is getting through to the population and it's all very quick it's not even like facebook or twitter it's mostly because there are a lot of videos and photos and and obviously we get the information that you know civilians get um, killed in the airstrike or they get shelled in the combat operation or whatever you know it's just like and yes um obviously if after the verification it is confirmed that those acts have taken place, then obviously they could amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. This just it's just so chaotic and it's happening all over Ukraine. And Ukraine is not a small country by any means. So I think the biggest challenge at the moment, or it will be for some time, is just to collect all this information and preserve it properly. 
but also we have a lot of refugees, people from Ukraine just evacuating from Ukraine altogether, going to Poland, to, um, to Romania, to, you know, all over the place. They could very well be victims also of certain grave crimes, so they would need to, um, to be approached for evidence. And I mean, it's, it, the scale of this conflict is just so overwhelming, so I don't know how, but that's just this phase. We also have the previous eight years, and that's a whole different story with that. Yeah, I can. When you hear, I can only imagine what it's like to to try and and gather evidence and preserve it in the way that is needed for a court in such a complicated and fluid situation as as they have now. I think the good thing about the fact that they were already doing this and to have people on the ground doing this is that for the OTP, uh, they already have contacts in Ukraine and there is a network they can kind of connect with to get evidence. But of course, it's very unusual um, for the ICC OTP to investigate kind of live crimes as they happen. And it's going to be a real challenge and, and probably a new way of working where they're not only looking at things that happened a couple of years ago or maybe even a couple of months ago, but that are happening as they investigate. And I thought I'd also just uh, check in with Melanie O'Brien when I had her um, in the interview about what her take was on exactly what kinds of things we're already seeing coming out from Ukraine that maybe the ICC will focus on exactly which kinds of war crimes she can see uh, that, that are already potential uh, kind of fodder for the ICC's mill. What we've seen so far in the reports, there's there are a lot of reports of war crimes coming out basically since day one, as soon as Russia entered into the Ukraine. And it, it's almost like a checklist. It's almost like Russia is is going... Bombing hospitals, check. Bombing schools, check. Indiscriminate bombing of, of civilian areas, check. Using indiscriminate weapons such as cluster munitions and uh, inaccurate ballistic missiles, check. Uh, and then today, attacking a nuclear power plant, check. So the list is starting to grow and it's really quite concerning. And one of the interesting things is these things that I've mentioned, they're all violations of international humanitarian law most of which we find in Additional Protocol 1, which Ukraine and Russia are both state parties to. Um, they're also customary international law. So those are the, the rules, for example, the prohibition of using indiscriminate weapons and for undertaking indiscriminate attacks for against attacking civilians, uh, against attacking installations with dangerous forces, for example, including which, which things like dams or nuclear power plants. I also question whether, because of course, under international humanitarian law, militaries are supposed to have legal advisors to ensure that the decisions that commanders make are in conformity with international humanitarian law. And with the way that Russia has been behaving, you question whether they do actually have that. But when you think about the international criminal courts, when you look at the war crimes that are under the Rome Statute and you match them to the breaches of international humanitarian law, there isn't necessarily a match. And I'll give you an example in particular. So one of the concerns that has definitely happened so far is this use of indiscriminate weapons. So cluster munitions have been used, including on a school, and they're also using inaccurate ballistic missiles, meaning that they can't actually say they can't determine where the missile will land. 
And then what we're getting out of that are civilian deaths and injuries because they're hitting civilian areas. Now, under the Rome Statute, when we're looking at war crimes, one of them is employing weapons, projectiles, materials, etc., which are of a nature which are inherently indiscriminate. However, it then requires that it's only a crime under the Rome Statute, provided that such weapons are the subject of a comprehensive prohibition, the meaning of which isn't clear. Does it mean it's in a treaty, for example? But also the weapons have to be included in an annex to the Rome Statute by an amendment. And that annex still does not exist all these years later. So in fact, this provision of the Rome Statute can't actually be applied. So under the way it's structured, because the list of weapons does not exist, no one can be charged under that provision. And so therefore, this is something that the International Criminal Court can't actually do anything about. And it's one of the, probably so far we could say, the most serious and the most prominent violation of IHL that the Russians are undertaking. So I think it's really important that when we're thinking about the role that the ICC is going to take, that we acknowledge that actually this is not the ultimate solution here because they don't necessarily have jurisdiction over all violations of IHL. And, you know, a lot of things were left out, particularly around weapons. You know, we know that things like chemical weapons and nuclear weapons are not in the Rome Statute as prohibited weapons. So we need to remember that it is not the solution to everything and that we do need to think about national states actually complying with their obligations under international humanitarian law, you know, the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols and actually taking action to ensure accountability for violations of this because the, the International Criminal Court can't necessarily do it. Now, that's the ICC, but there are another set of puzzle pieces also about filling the gaps someplace or another, which are being discussed incredibly rapidly at the moment. I just came out of an online public meeting where the foreign minister of Ukraine, Dmitry Kuleba, was talking through the potential for creating a special criminal tribunal to try those responsible for aggression in Ukraine. And he was kind of flanked by, again, online, so virtually by Philippe Sands and Dapo Akande. Dapo's a friend of the podcast, been on before. And they were both explaining that um, such a tribunal would be really complementary to the ICC, which can't prosecute aggression in Ukraine because that country hasn't signed up to that bit of the Rome Statute and if it went through the Security Council referral, then Russia would veto that. And of course, all of the references at that meeting were to Nuremberg as the, the previous example of something that was considered impossible, that is possible. I've seen quite a debate already breaking out on Twitter about whether this is a good idea, whether it's sensible or not. And of course, I asked Mel O'Brien that too, and asked her how she saw the possibilities of setting up such a new tribunal specifically on this thing, on aggression against Ukraine. Um, just to warn you, my Zoom link in this part wasn't the, the best, so sorry if there are some gaps in the quality. I think a special tribunal on aggression would be, for this particular conflict, would be extremely appealing to states 
obviously there is a gap in the ICC's ability to prosecute the crime of aggression. Um, and there's also a gap in national legislation to do this as well. And they, even if they do have it, they don't necessarily have extraterritorial jurisdiction. So, for example, Germany has the crime in, in, in their criminal law, but they only apply it to Germany. So, for example, aggression against Germany. So it's quite limited in that sense. So this would fill a gap for sure. The one thing that I question, and, and it's sort of a question <laughs> that has been hovering around a lot in relation to this Ukraine-Russia conflict, is that why only a tribunal for this particular example of aggression? We have other examples of aggression around the world and conflict and that can't be prosecuted before the ICC, usually for jurisdictional reasons. So why are we only filling in this one particular gap? Why would it be so specific? And really, are we we would only be looking at Putin and, you know, a couple of major, you know, the, the top brass of, of the Russian military. So, you know, it's quite interesting to think about would states really want to put the money into creating an entire tribunal that would just be focused on trying Putin and a couple of other military leaders? Well, what would you like then, you know, uh, a standing aggression for uh, as, as many countries as do aggression who haven't signed up to the ICC? Well, perhaps that's what we need. But I just think, you know, it gets a bit hypocritical when you say, OK, we're only we're only going to apply it to this particular case and ignore all the other cases that exist around the world. And the other development that uh, we've seen is coming out of places like Poland and Lithuania who are talking about setting up what they're calling joint investigation teams. That seems quite important considering where all of the refugees are in countries like that. But I see people saying that this could be some form of universal jurisdiction, that then people could be put on trial locally, Russian nationals then actually being put on trial in places like Poland. How do you assess uh, this new set of developments that I can see emerging? Yeah, I think it's really great. So I think, obviously, the International Criminal Court is a court of last resort. That's what it was always designed to be. And essentially what was created out of it and what was meant to be is that it's an international criminal justice system that prioritises national jurisdictions. They're supposed to be the ones who do this first. So I think that's really great. And you've got all the refugees flowing across the border into those countries. And so you've got people there who can actually give evidence straight away pretty much. And there's a lot of work going on in terms of working to collect evidence about what is going on. And so I think there'll be quite a lot of evidence. So it, it's it's a really good way to do it. And it's a, a good use of national jurisdictions and avoiding, because obviously also the ICC is never going to try everyone. They're, they're not going to try that soldier on the ground. That's, you know, that's the one killing civilians, for example. That would be more likely to be a, a national court that would do that. So I think this is the one of the most effective opportunities to do that. I wanted to also say about this uh, this uh, effort to, to create another tribunal. This is also something that was mentioned by Boris Johnson. I've seen the Dutch government jump on this. I thought for a while why they want something extra to the ICC, why they want to double up the work. But it's very much the idea that this is complementary, that it would do the crime of aggression bit. And it looks like the Netherlands and some other European countries are also kind of signed up to do this because everybody thinks that that, uh, that the invasion itself should also be 
prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, it is very curious uh, to see uh, that happening. But I think, as Mel also said, it is interesting, great in many ways to see that there are so much sort of imagination going on at different national levels and that there are different national ways of of going ahead with prosecution, maybe this international way of doing it uh, as well. It's like the whole world's coming up with uh, with different examples. Surely uh, we've left a lot out. Uh, maybe we can come back to the details of how people have been collecting and assessing uh, materials to prove war crimes. Um, we talked in, in some podcasts before here about collecting of digital evidence and apps for that and rules for that. Yeah, I agree. I think we should definitely uh, look back at that. Uh, the other thing I've noted that we haven't covered that was also happening at the same time as I was looking at this potential for a special tribunal was that the Human Rights Council, which has been meeting in Geneva, has just established something like a new commission of inquiry into Ukraine, which also has some aspects of its work like an investigative mechanism, like the IIIM for Syria. So that's another whole area of uh, material that we need to get our heads around. Absolutely. That's something also that the Dutch foreign ministry is is pushing and is mentioned. And we have what's been happening at the European Court of Human Rights with provisional measures there, which was kind of out of left field for me and so fast. Yeah, absolutely. Everything seems to be coming at a breakneck speed. But uh, meanwhile, just to finish off the podcast, maybe on a more... Um Maybe on a more fun note, Mel also wanted us to ask her about her recent reading, like we do on the main podcast we do, so I did. Oh, yes. So I've got a couple of related books, a fiction and a non-fiction book that I picked up that I've been reading. So the first one is the fiction book, and it's called Sisters of the Resistance by Christine Wells. And the non-fiction book is called Mistyor, and it's by Justine Picardi. And the reason these are connected, and they're connected to work as well, because people may not know, but Christian Dior's sister, Catherine Dior, was a very active member of the French Resistance. So the non-fiction book that I've got is about her and her life, but it includes obviously quite a large section about the French Resistance and as much information as, as the author could find about Catherine Dior's involvement in the French resistance. And she ultimately was tortured and sent to Ravensbrück camp. So she had, it was quite significant for her and something that affected her for the rest of her life. And so I was quite delighted in the same bookshop to find this non-fiction book about her life, but then also find this fictional account, which she was not the main character, but it revolves around um, two young women who were sisters who lived in the same building as her and ended up becoming involved in the resistance and really draws on real life scenarios and things that went on in the resistance. Really, the fiction one is very easy to read. I read it in a couple of days. It was quite fun, but really interesting and really fantastic to see the the story of a woman as well who was yeah, so involved in the resistance and also involved with 
other women in particular in a particular resistance group. Thanks so much to Melanie and Nadia for uh, talking to us and making time. Yeah, thank you uh, so much. Hopefully we can uh, see each other in real life when I'm over my uh, my lurgy and when we can uh, talk about maybe it'll be more Ukraine, but maybe we can manage to uh, cover some other subject. Yes, that would be lovely. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.